and welcome back to Ladies First. I'm Corey. Elizabeth is joining me today, and I am so super excited because we're going to talk about Xena. On this incredibly hot day. It's hot because Xena's hot. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be one of those podcast people, so buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Fair warning, I am a Xena fanatic. This was like baby's first anything in fandom i remember i can't this show came out when i was in middle school and it was the first time i got to watch like this really kick-ass lady be the hero and be flawed and be everything so i have lots of feelings about this and i'm gonna try to let elizabeth get in a word edgewise <laughs> so hopefully that goes okay um but we do only have an hour so i'm gonna get right into this um Xena, for those of you who don't know, is like the grand lady of WLW ships. And this was back when you had this 90s kind of action cheese that I believe was on WGN at the time. And I they think would have you're right, these, yeah. Yeah, they'd have these like action Saturdays or whatever, or Sundays, depending on whatever day they decided to air them on. And they would have this really horrific series of Sinbad that didn't last too terribly long. And then their big tentpole was Hercules featuring everybody's favorite conservative, Kevin Sorbo. Oh my God. Now here's the thing. Xena actually spun off of Hercules and it's one of those instances and it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while you get a spinoff that absolutely kicks its predecessor to the curb. I was under the impression that Hercules was the spinoff of Xena. Yeah, no, 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 no. So Okay, what, then. <laughs> yeah, no, Xena was a spinoff from Hercules. And here's another funny little tidbit. We almost didn't get Lucy Lawless as Xena. Who would we have had instead? Wait for it. There was another little show in the 90s that was very religious very popular it was a touch by an angel yes roma downey oh no yes oh my god but because she booked touch by an angel she had to drop out and we got lucy lawless the match made in heaven i mean i'm sorry this is like fate for me Mm -hmm. this it's just fate it's fandom fate so we narrowly missed, you know, touched by a Xena or touched by a shocker and whatever you want to call it. And we actually got Lucy <laughs> Lawless, who I think was just perfect and born for that role. But Xena was actually, um, she started out, for those of you who don't know, she was this really, really awful homicidal warlord. And she didn't start out that way. It's one of those cool stories, still murder bro type of things where... She initially picked up the sword to try and defend her village from raiding warlords and kind of became one. And when we meet her in Hercules, she's finally had her limit. She can't let her men kill this baby. So she stops them and then they turn on her and they make her walk the gauntlet, which is basically her men are lined up in a row, uh, you know, one on each side. And she has to walk between them while they beat her. And she manages to survive, and, you know, there's this whole thing with Hercules, and she decides she's going to try and, you know, go away from her warlord lifestyle. So that's the setup. 
And when Xena actually starts, the first episode is, you know, she's stripped down to her unders. And she's... <laughs> it, was, it was the 90s. Yeah, and she's bearing her armor and her chakram and her sword. And she's just... It's implied that she's just going to walk away from it and not do anything. And then all of a sudden she hears screaming. And there's this little village called Potidea where the other half of Xena Warrior Princess lives. Her name is Gabrielle. And mm. her family was... Her family, her village was under attack by warlords. So, as fate would have it, Xena suits up one last time to stop them. And then Gabrielle decides she's going to follow Xena, whether Xena likes it or not. And this <laughs> kicks off, like, six seasons of, like, the most delightful, tragic, slash intense love affair you'll ever see on television. And I say this even though it was the 90s and they couldn't completely do it. I'm going to get into this context a little bit later, but you cannot go back and rewatch this series and be like, oh, yeah, they're just gals being pals. Yeah, I remember... Not as a kid. I guess I'm about five years younger than you. But I remember going up to my grandmother's house. And she lives in the middle of nowhere. So you just have the public access channels. And Hercules mm-hmm. and Xena were some of the only things I could watch. So a lot of my memory of the show was watching it as a kid. And I actually remember, even as a kid, sort of picking up on the subtext before I even really understood what it was. It was Destiny, clearly. Yes. Well, and here's the thing. Um, I gave a basic plot set up for Xena. The, the entire six series is her trying to redeem her warlord past, so she travels all around. I mean, she travels all around like to freaking China and <laughs> Japan and back and somehow meets the baby Jesus. And yeah, it's it's the 90s action. Nothing makes sense. It's just camp. Just, just go with it. The show has no sense of proportion. It does not, and I love it about it. This was back when you could do, like, fun camp, and everybody was like, yeah, it's the 90s. Of course we'll do this. I mean, you had Bruce Campbell and Ted Raimi and all of these other lovely, delightful character actors that would just show up and have a ball. But, (laughs) um, yeah, the basic plot is Xena and Gabrielle travel around and help people. So they get into a lot of shenanigans, a lot of non-proportional shenanigans, but they get into a lot of shenanigans. There's serious episodes. There's just really, like, screwball comedy. How did they even come up with this stuff? And they just kind of do everything. But when I mean, like, it's the grandmother of all WLW ships, I want to kind of start here. Because this was the first time we really had a show that knew where its bread was buttered. (laughs) And we had the advent of the internet, so you weren't just stuck with mailing lists anymore. Oh my god. So you had this entire group of writers, like these ladies, and fanfic writers, and they would get together and watch Xena, and then they'd write up reviews, or they'd write up fanfic, and then they would start collating them. And it's really one of the first examples I can remember of, like, fandom compendiums. I know, I believe Academy of Bards is still up. I think um, there's another one that's still up, too. I am pretty sure Academy of Bards is still up, and that one just 
it is mind-boggling the amount of fic that has. Uh, Xenafiction.net is another one. And it was really the first time that you had a mainstream shippable pair with the technology that we could start talking to each other and start writing this out. And to me, I'm going to say this, and I'm sure there's going to be slash shippers that, you know, want to step up with me, like, no, no, no. But for me, the really, the first time I saw a lot of alternate universe was with the Xena shippers. And I know everybody and their dog does AU now, but it used to be called Uber. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was, it was taken off of because Xena, they would occasionally do some episodes that were alternate universe. So, obviously the fans took that and ran with it, and they would do, like, modern day or science fiction. It was basically, as long as you had a tall, blue-eyed brunette and a short, red-haired or blonde-haired, green-eyed lady, then you were good. <laughs> but it's also, I, I want you to focus on the character descriptions I just gave, the physical character descriptions I just gave. Because I think if you stop just for a moment, you're going to recognize, wait a minute, that is pretty much every WLW fic trope we have right now. Yep. And that really started with Xena. So that's why I call it, like, the grand lady of all WLW ships. That's where we got so many of our hardcore, like, original tropes from. And, yeah, you know, like, Elizabeth and I have talked about this earlier. Like, we took some tropes we maybe shouldn't have from the L word and then on. But, like, the original grand mother tropes really came from Xena. And it came from a bunch of women finally having something they could watch and having the technology to give them a platform to kind of get together and share all of this fic. And I'm not talking about, like, oh, there's a couple hundred. I'm talking, like, there are thousands. There are people who still write Xena fanfiction. It still shows up as an AU, actually, with other characters. I would argue that just about... Any AU that has, I don't care what fandom it's from, but if it has a tall brunette and a short redhead or a blonde, it's technically a Xena AU. (laughs) I would make that argument because it is just so inherent to our ships. And I'm not saying that's how it should be. Obviously, we need more diversity in what we ship and what we have in representation to be able to ship. But as far as... You know, just that original trope of the tall brunette, the short blonde, that's where it comes from. Yeah, and I mean, we do mix it up a bit, but the blonde and the brunette is Mm -hmm. really the main element of it. And also a tall and small contrast. Which one is the tall one changes depending on the fandom and the actresses, but yeah. (laughs) Well, even now, um, like with Supergirl. yeah. You don't have Sanvers necessarily that is, you know, brunette and blonde, but you still have, like, this tall, small dichotomy with the two of them. And then over in the non-canon ship of Supercorp, you've got blonde brunette. Um, I actually think it might be more persistent with non-canon ships, but the specific reason why I think that is is that Xena was done in all subtext. 
And yes. so this sort of set up our shipping format for non-canon ships. So that's why we gravitate towards this, especially with the non-canon ships. So the Barry oh, Supercore. I mean, and again, like other examples, you have Glee with, you know, Brittany Santana. Or, I mean, obviously the tall and small was switched a little bit. Or you had, like, Quinn and Rachel. Or in a more recent ship, I know the Power Rangers crew, they're shipping, was it Kim and Trini hardcore. And they're both women Don't of pretend color. like you don't know what it's called. <laughs> no, I do. It's called Pink Lemonade. But I was trying to think of the portmanteau for it. And I was like, shit, I just had a brain fart. But no, Such a like, great ship name. I know. Please call it by Pink Lemonade. Don't do the portmanteau. Please call it by Pink Lemonade. But anyways, you still have the tall and small dichotomy just because um, Becky G is, I don't even know if she's five foot. Um, yeah. But you still see, you know, the WLW community gravitating towards those tropes. And I think what Elizabeth said with especially for non-canon ships is also true. Now, the interesting thing with Xena is it's not that the creators didn't want it to be non-canonical it was this was the 90s and it was still network television and it was i think xena started before ellen came out but it was still right around that time when ellen came out her show got canceled right after and everyone thought her career was tanked like this is like the 90s you can have all of that camp and you can have them going to China and helping give birth to the baby Jesus, but you know, you can't have any overtly gay stuff. But what was really interesting at the time was the show kind of was, the showrunners were like, okay. And then they just so flagrantly sidestepped it. To when when you hear the word subtext might as well be main text, they're, they're talking about Xena, because that was the first show that really was like, okay, well, we're going to do it anyway. And we're going to so blatantly and obviously code this that if you are part of this community, you know exactly what we're saying. Which is actually sort of interesting because there didn't, a playbook didn't exist for this before Xena. No. But that sort of speaks to, like, there's certain universal themes with Femslash that go back even farther than Xena. But Xena, you know, it was the intersection of the themes plus the internet that made Xena unique. But it's interesting that we we always have had and still do have this shorthand. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, let's like like you said, the technology was there with Xena, that we could all finally kind of be connected, and we weren't just relying on mailing lists. And again, I'm only 32. I am. I know there are older ladies who are listening to me, like, ah, oh, you don't know what you're talking about mailing lists. I remember. And I don't mean to make you sound older. I, I acknowledge I was on the tail end of the mailing list right when Xena blew up. But it really was, you know, even before Xena and the internet, it was you had mailing lists where you had um, people sending around floppy disks at times. Or people, I mean, it was a struggle to share this stuff. Yeah, and then even like, like even going back to Star Trek, which was, I think, that was like Patient Zero for fanzines. Yeah. Was one of the original distribution methods for content that was not, air quotes, creator approved. Because mm -hmm. censorship was a humongous deal. It, yes, it was. And, I mean, you still have authors now that are kind of they're, they're uh, hesitant about fan fiction. 
But at the time when, you know, the Star Trek or what was it, Starsky and Hutch? Ha! <laughs> yes. Yes. No, we were actually, um, we were at the, uh, thank goodness it's Femslash. And there was a group there called Escapades. And they have been running a con for just, like, slash fandoms for, it's like, over 20 years. And I remember them telling me over that uh, weekend, it was like, yeah, we did mailing lists, and we did the fanzines, and then the internet came out, and everything changed. And Xena's really, it was just that perfect storm of, it came out right when the internet became accessible. And yeah, you still had, like, the GeoCities, and the, um... <laughs> Lycos. Yeah, I mean, these were still wild, wild west days of the internet. But it was there. You maybe had to get on AOL to go find it, or Netscape Navigator, or Internet Explorer, because Google didn't exist yet. I can't believe Google's only, like, 14 or 15 years old. Like, it's, it's actually, like, astounding how much technology is... Because, like, I'm 28, so I can I can remember when I was a kid that it was really rare for people to have home computers. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years later, it was weird if you didn't have one. Yeah, well, you and I are right in that generation of a huge tech bubble. And I remember Yeah, we we I, span I, we span VHS tapes to iPhones. Yes. And I remember we got a computer very early, especially for the small town I lived in. And that was just because my mother is a tech fiend, and I love her for it. But I remember we were one of the first people in town with a computer with internet access. So I was always, you know, I became a little addict early on. <laughs> I had dial-up clear through high school. And I, I live right in the middle of the Bay Area, too. Well, we had dial-up, and then we got cable by the time, it was like DSL, I think, by the time I was a junior in high school. Yeah, that sounds about right. But, um, yeah, that was just going on the internet, finding all of that. It was early, early days, but at the same time, it was this kind of nice little, this is my own little community that I found. There's actually a great deal of um, effort that was invested into finding these communities then. And so that was part of the reason why they became such strong communities, is that Mm -hmm. there was just this much more effort you had to go through to even just find them. Like, the the algorithms that Google uses, so when you start typing something and it's like, oh, did you mean this? Or if you misspell it, it's like, did you mean this, stupid? Like, Thank you, Google. Uh, none of that existed in older search engines. So even no. if you did know exactly what you were looking for, it was an absolute crapshoot if you were going to find it. Yeah, and I remember I would have to spend a couple of afternoons cycling through three or four different search engines to try and find yeah. something. Um I remember, like, MSN, Netscape, Lycos, and then maybe, what was it, Hotspot? AltaVista. Oh, AltaVista, that was another one. But, yeah, it was, when you found something, it was like finding buried treasure, because it was that (laughs) you had to put a lot of work into getting to it. Yeah. And a lot of it was good content, too, though, which is, like, because we have so much more of it now, and younger people feel comfortable writing it. Because that's another thing, is shifting cultural changes with the gay and the queer communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Before, the people who were brave enough to actually put the content out there often were adults. Right. And so that's why... Oh, it was very much. This was was an adult's game. 
back yes. then. I mean, I, we are going to talk, we are going to have an entire episode probably this summer about just how much generational shift has gone on between fandoms. But back at that time, fandom was an adult game. It had to be. I mean, everything was restricted by age. I mean, granted, it's not like they, you know, had a camera in your house. I still, to this day, sort of, like, feel funny. Like, when I, it's like, are you 18? I'm like, of course I'm 18. Like, wait, I've been 18 for a decade. Yeah. (laughs) Like. (laughs) Well, it was not just that, but, I mean, at the time, in the 90s, this internet was expensive. I mean, it's still expensive today. Way more expensive than it should be. But getting a computer back then and the internet was expensive and only you know you you were an adult only an adult could really afford that um so it was and even uh infrastructure heavily restricted it too yeah because you know like like i've said before many times i live in the bay area we have in our major hub city is san jose we have free wi-fi in the whole city so even here it was still it i mean like you you still had to work for it and even, like, like if someone needed to use the phone, you had to get off the internet. Yeah. Or, like, a, a real, a true sign of wealth in the area was if you had a separate phone line just for See, the internet. We did. Internet. And this is why I love my mother. We actually had a second phone line because she didn't want to have to <laughs> wait for that. But, yeah, going back to, by the time you found this, it really was like, this is my little community I found. And even though, you know, I was a little baby at the time. There are all of these adult women who are writing, like, thousands, hundreds of pages of fic stories. And, you know, they went on to adapt them to novels. And that's where we have our current crop of, like, major um, lesbian bisexual writers right now. Uh, Like, Radcliffe. She's a big one. You know, she's considered, you know, one of the grand... I, I don't want to say that. Um, she's considered one of the bigger, more established names in um, WWE fiction. And she got her start in Xena fanfic. Yep. So it's one of those, if you came up during it and you were the baby in an adult group where you were like, kind of being mentored it's really interesting now to see how fandom has shifted to be so young but they still hold so many of those beats that these women started yeah and it's it's interesting because like sometimes i feel like like that's the thing that i always love about tropes is that people are often not aware that there is a reason why you like this specific thing your tastes have been catered to it it, or it's catered specifically to a taste to format well and I want to look like with that in mind let's actually take a moment and look at the actual characters of Xena and Gabrielle so you've got Xena she's this tall dark brooding very physical you know if she were a a woman not a woman if she were a man (laughs) she would be a prime candidate for mangst or man pain but they gave us a woman who was very fierce, very strong, probably always the most competent person in the room, could get her way out of anything, and she was so emotionally complex. I mean, she she was a superhero, essentially, but she wasn't, like, 
Hercules goody two-shoes superhero. She wasn't a god. She was just a regular woman that had put in an incredible amount of training to get to where she was. And she had so many layers. And she was so complex and nuanced. And I think for a lot of women, I know for me, but for a lot of women, it was the first time we got to see that type of character. Well, and she's written like a Greek hero. Not a tragic hero, but specifically a Greek hero. Well, she is Greek. Yeah, and I mean, I, the, like, if you've ever read the Odyssey or the Iliad, like, it's kind of clear what they're pulling from. They're not pulling from the women of Greek mythology. <laughs> but, I mean, she is very... Up until then, they tried to give us, you know, some lady heroes, and there was some varying degree of success. But Xena was just so unapologetically about the ladies. And they wrote them like people. I mean, if there was ever a show that passed the sexy lampshade test in spades, it's Xena. And part of that is because of how they wrote the characters. We have Xena, tall, dark, and broody, and serious, and, I mean, she can have fun. But she only, especially for the first couple of seasons, she only really softens around Gabrielle. And Gabrielle is like the short, plucky you know, sidekick hero who's bubbly and happy. And, I mean, again, as I'm saying this, you can probably identify a lot of these tropes that you've read in recent fanfic. The idealist and the realist. Yes. But what I loved about Xena is they actually let them evolve past those tropes. Um, you know, Gabrielle, from season three to the end of the series, so, so four to the end of the series... You know, she actually becomes a very skilled fighter in her own right. She struggles to, you know, I'm not really a bard anymore. I've killed people. Um, you know, do I want to go away from the path of the warrior? Do I want to still fight? You know, she moves from a staff to fighting with size. Uh, she really comes into her own as her own character, and she is also very deep and rich and nuanced she's not perfect she makes mistakes um you know she's very lethal in her own right at the end of the series you know she is essentially takes up the mantle of xena and i'm gonna get to that series finale in a minute before we're done here because <laughs> i have thoughts on this um but we get to see this character who evolves and in some ways she has a strength that xena never really did it's a specific and, kind of strength. Yeah, she has a specific core strength to her that Xena never quite managed to have. And I'm not saying this as a bad, not as a knock on Xena, because obviously you have somebody who had the fortitude to turn back from a really dark path and own up to it and actively work for the rest of her life to try and make up for it. I mean, that is not a walk in the park. Well, it's not just having characters who are opposed, not opposed to each other, but they're, they're complementary to one another, mm -hmm. which is another key aspect of femme slash shipping. Yes. And you, you do need that, though, because the characters, if, if they don't need to rely on each other, then you don't have a show. Oh, absolutely. But what, and, what I loved with Xena is as they evolved the ways that they complemented each other evolved, too. Which is interesting, because the show sort of has this very Monster of the Week vibe to it, and yet still manages to maintain a consistent growth arc across its tenure. 
See, everybody says this show is too cheesy to watch now, and I say you're wrong because of this right here. Yes, there is so much camp in there, and there is so much cheese, but the writing, when you start from the beginning and to the, when you end the series, how these characters have evolved, sometimes it is so subtle that you don't really pick up on it until the series is done and you go back and you just kind of review and I'm like, oh my goodness. But I, I loved that about the show is that they weren't afraid to go dark, but they just made it very comfortable for you to go on that dark journey with them because they had so much other crazy going on. Well, before the grimdark trend, um, this was sort of normal is that you would put characters into dangerous situations with reasonable stakes, but you knew that they were most likely coming out the other end. Mm -hmm. Fandom is a much more stressful experience now than it used to be, I think. It is, and I do think Xena had a little bit of a hand in that, because Gabrielle and Xena would come out the other end, but the show would really make them work for it. Or, I mean, like, the show would, you know, beat the crap out of them at times. The end of season four, they're literally crucified. What? Yeah, I'm not shitting you. The end of season four, they are quite literally crucified and die and go up and their angels about to go into heaven. Like, the show oh, has no Oh, my show. God. But season five, the entire thing is about their swapping off, becoming archangels and getting out of heaven. And then, I mean, they eventually get back to uh our, you know the realm of the living but it is just woo god the show really <laughs> drags them like it really really puts them to the test and it did it in a way that none of us were like oh they fringed them because they did it and it was so beautiful because they're hanging on these stupid fucking crosses like i love you so we're just sitting here like, eh, they said they love each other. They're dead. Oh, they're angels now. Um, <laughs> it actually, it, it's, it doesn't even sound that dumb in co- out of context simply because, like, this is the sort of creativity you need to have in these types of shows to keep yes. them interesting. Well, and then, you know, in season three, um, some shenanigans go down, and it takes them having this weird wackadoodle. They nearly kill each other, and then they go to this dreamland and sing out their issues. But it lasts <laughs> for several episodes. I mean, they really make them work for it. There is no, oh, one or two episodes of Peril. They would drag it out. This is crazy. <laughs> And, you know, even at the end, and I mean, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about the end of the series, which I still hate, and I have decided that Many Happy Returns is the end of the series instead of the actual end. Um, You know, spoiler alert, Xena does die. It wouldn't be a Femme's last ship if one of them didn't. And I understand why, because this was a village of, like, 20,000 people that she essentially kind of helped slaughter, and... To free their souls, she had to stay dead. And so it was, well, she was finally going to be able to have that redemption. And fair. even then, at the end of it, at the very end of it, we see Gabrielle on a freaking boat. And all of a sudden, I guess, oh, Xena's there kissing her on the forehead. And it turns out Xena still gets to travel with her as a spirit. 
and she still gets to like tangibly interact with her. So you can have your tragic death and eat it, eat your cake yes. too. Like they gave them an actual kiss, and you know, obviously it's the '90s, so they still had to kill her, and then they still somehow managed to give you a happy ending. Writers so take note. The flagrant middle fingering that the showrunners gave to their <laughs> Phrasing. network is just astounding. And I don't think people can appreciate that now unless you were kind of alive at that time and knew just well, how we can, hard uh, we, it was. We can appreciate the shows that were inspired by it. Buffy clearly was heavily inspired by this format. Carmilla is a modern a distilling of the things that were established in Xena. Well, I've said before, I know I've said it to you, and I think I said it to Gretchen, I think Winona Earp is its spiritual successor. Yeah, that was the next one that I was going to say, is that Winona Earp very much has... Well, a lot of people compare it to Buffy. Or I saw on Tumblr someone that said it was, it's like Buffy, but outdoors. I which I'm like, well, you just described Xena? <laughs> yeah, no, I think as far as, like, if any show is Xena's spiritual successor... I am going to, you know, draw my line in the sand and say it's Winona Earp. Just because it has that kind of lovable, campy quality to it, and it's not mean. You know, it's not... Yes. I mean, bad things happen, but it's not outright mean. And there's just so much camp. Just delightful <laughs> camp that is... You know, you can go, and a week later you can still quote it. Or you can still quote something, or you can still laugh about something. And you're like, I can't believe they did that. But they made it work. And they still have, you know, just from the first season at least, they still had, like, this set of character progression. And even if you just want to look at Way Hot, you have the tall and the small and the brunette and the redhead. Yes. So And the I, cool and composed and... The spunky one. They're actually kind of both a little spunky, but Nicole is definitely... No, you know what? I wouldn't describe Nicole as spunky. She's actually a little awkward, which is part of why I like her. She is... Nicole is an awkward little puppy that has moments of being very, very suave. And then moments of just, you know, being an absolute doofus. <laughs> I identify with that so much. It's it works for about thirty seconds, and then you're consciously aware of how suave you were, and then you completely mess it up. Yes, unless your <laughs> name is Xena, Warrior Princess from Amphipolis, in which case you never mess that up. Suave is your default setting, which is another <laughs> thing I really liked about her. She was there, she she could be in awkward situations, but she always had control outside of like one or two of their screwball comedy episodes. Like I remember the one episode they gave them like scabies and lice and yeah it was yikes yeah they got <laughs> them itchy just thinking about it yeah the show the show is a trip i mean it really is and it's delightful but xena was this character she always had things under control or she always had a plan and then later on gabrielle became you know very much i'm still kind of a little bit spunkier than you are but i am in control i have a plan i can do this and carry this out. And uh, part of the reason I love that so much is because I know that's not me and it's just some nice little fantasy wish fulfillment. <laughs> uh, you get to see an obviously bisexual lady who is just a Lothario and she knows she is and she's not a dick about it. 
And she's very committed to her very tiny partner. <laughs> See, I identify with the confidence. Because that's the, the characters that I'm usually drawn to would be like, well, I, I like um, outward confidence, but inwards insecurity. Mm-hmm. So, of but- course, you have Maggie and Maggie Sawyer and uh, and Zena and Carmilla and... Um, Kennedy from Buffy and Buffy. Well, I Zena, she does have a vulnerability, and that's just because I don't think you can do the things she's done and then come back from them without carrying that with you. Of... Well, yeah, that gives it gives the character dimensionality and weight. Yeah, because I had it in me to do horrific horrific actions and yeah I've turned away from that now but what if I do it again yeah and that was always like her struggle so so, yeah she was still suave and you know lady cool but she was also carrying this burden of I have done awful things I have done truly awful things and it's one of the it's another thing I think that makes Xena so unique is we're seeing the aftermath of a character redeeming themselves of like actually having to do the hard work because most movies we see that one character that gets their redemption and then it ends and we assume it's all going to be okay. And Xena is after that one redemptive moment and we get to see her putting in all of that work for the rest of the series. It's not, Oh, I redeemed myself. It's done. Yeah, and there's also, in the modern interpretation of this trope, it's typically futile that there's a redemption arc. Or mm-hmm. rather, that the the character's putting forth the effort, but it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that anything good is going to come from it. Or rather, hmm, I don't want to phrase this. Okay, so, it's, okay, scratch that. It's when you have characters who do horrible things in modern shows... They don't make it about the terrible things that they do. Mm-hmm. And so even though they, they may redeem themselves, but often it's done in a single action and we're just supposed to, as the audience, forget that they did all of these horrible things. Exactly. And well, like, I'm sure everyone who's listening just had a very, uh, in whatever your fandom is, I'm sure you just had a specific character, probably male, that just popped into your head immediately. Yes. But there used to be this format in television, especially that the show opens with the character having done something terrible and the rest of the show is about them redeeming that act, which again goes back to Greek storytelling of the, the like the Odyssey. And it's something I honestly I really miss that because I think how far we've gotten away from that and how we define redemption now is just so cheap. Either you do that redemptive act and then you die. Or you do something and then all of a sudden everything's fine. Or they go so far that they never even entertain redemption. It's like, oh no, this character's done terrible things. They're obviously bad and they're just never going to be redeemed. Why even bother? Well, also that the they're, killing a character is not the only way to redeem them. I feel like writers just as a whole completely forgot that you can make a, a life compelling. sacrifice... Yeah, they're not compelling. There's, there's, you can make a sacrifice that it is that is equivalent to giving up your life without actually killing the character. And you can make a very, very compelling story about actively working for redemption. 
Yes. But for some reason, we got away from that, or somebody decided that that wasn't as entertaining as watching all these characters be bad, because, you know, we love our Grimdark for some reason. Um, We seem to be taking a turn from that, fortunately. Yes. But Xena was really the show about, I did a terrible, horrific thing, that if we were in a modern setting, she would have died in her moment of redemption, or they wouldn't have even entertained her redeeming herself. Or it would have gone a God of War situation where it ends up catering to Greek tragedy storytelling instead of the epic. Right. But, you know, this show, we got six seasons of her growing as a person and finding love and finding fulfillment all while recognizing, yes, I've done terrible things that I have to keep atoning for. Yeah, and you never do stop atoning. That's kind of the whole point of a redemptive hero. Right, and she never does. I mean, she literally dies freeing 20,000 people that she had a hand in killing. Because here's the thing, with, and with this liter- the, the way that this literary trip is supposed to go, the redemptive act is not a single action. The redemptive act is the act of embarking upon a redemptive quest. Right. And then that quest never really ends. It doesn't. You keep going until you die. That's the whole point, is that you've devoted your life to doing better. And it's, like, I mean... Like McGann Moore's. Right. That's, that's actually a really good example of that. Um, I was going to say, we don't really have a lot of characters right now that are devoted to that. Um, we've talked about Xena kind of being a superhero. I really think she was. And especially superheroes that are devoted to that. They have their tragic backstories, and that's where we see a lot of them coming from. We kind of have, like, the Bucky Barnes characters where it's like, (laughs) oh, he's not really responsible for it. They made him do it. And what I really loved about um, Xena or even Magan from Supergirl is they owned it. And then they said, okay, I have to make this better. There is this really weird trend with these heroes and modern tellings where the the burden of responsibility is shifted off of them, yes. which is actually, you, you mentioned Bucky is what made me think of that, which I don't like. Like, I want, I want my redempted character, redeemed characters to have that burden, because if you don't have that burden, then you're not actually redeemed, because you never actually learned anything. You haven't owned to anything. So you haven't earned it. Exactly. You just did a good thing to make yourself feel better. You didn't necessarily be like, I did this terrible thing. I have to make it better for the other people. Exactly. It's a, what is that um, C.K. Lewis quote? It's like, if you hurt somebody, you don't get to decide that you didn't hurt them. Yeah. And that it's, it's like, I don't want you to say you're sorry. I want you to do better. Well, there was a quote about Xena and it was from the official fan book. And yes, I had that. There's an official fan book? Yes. I remember these things. Oh, God. We're so old. And I can't remember exactly who said it. But I remember what they said, and it still stuck with me. And I love that dichotomy of of heroes, of Hercules is the hero that you hope is out there. Xena is the hero that you hope is within yourself. It's a very Superman-Batman dichotomy. And I remember I really loved that because, you know, Hercules was very kind of two-dimensional. He was just 
I'm the good guy, and we go out and we do this. And Xena was, I did some really awful things, but I have it within me to turn away from that and actively work to be better. Which is actually sort of ironic, because if you know anything about the actual mythological figure of Hercules, for him to be a do-gooder is, like, grandly ironic. That entire Xena's series probably closer. makes no sense. Xena's probably actually closer to Hercules' canonical characterization, although he never goes on a redemption art. Which is the one that goes on? Is it Heracles? They're the same. Another bastard son of Zeus. No, Heracles and Hercules are the same. It's just they're Greek and Roman. Are names. they? Yeah. Ah. But they do have to go on a redemptive quest after they kill their wife and son. You know, only. Well, to be fair, Hera made him do it. That's true. It's usually Hera who makes you do it. Hera messes everything up because her husband can't keep it in his pants. And, and because... he can't keep it in his pants, I do mean non-consensually to the people he goes after. Yep. Zeus is a bastard. And the way so that Hera... Hera... Well, Hera lashes out at him by lashing out at his children. Because she can't and actually lash victims. out at the king of the gods. And his victims. Oh, yes. Um... But moving away from that cheery topic, um, back to Xena. I mean, it really is. She's this kind of archetype of a hero, of a superhero that owns her shit. And the show never shied away from, like, oh, we'll make it so it's not really her fault. Like, they give you background. And you understand she wasn't always this way. But they're very clear that, like, yes, she made a decision. She could have made another decision to not do this. But she still chose this. And now she's owning up to it and actively working to atone for it. But they don't ever... Um, excuse it. Excuse it. And you see that with a lot of kind of some of our modern day heroes right now. Um, even to an extent with Batman. But- I hesitate to say it's a male-female dichotomy. It can't... I, I mean, it's not always, but it can be. Yes, because if you think about it, it's just a difference in the way that the tragic backstory is framed. In the often, the, especially in modern interpretations of Batman, his backstory is framed as justification for his behavior. Yes, as opposed to an inciting incident, which obviously, depending on the canon you're reading, that that changes. Like right. personally, to me, the '90s Batman, the animated cartoon, is the canon of Batman. But you know, that's not always the case. But often with female heroes, there feels there seems to be a little bit more sense of personal ownership over your own actions, over your you feel a sense of responsibility for what you've done. Right. Well, I mean, even with Gabrielle, um, when she loses her blood in a sense, where she kills someone for the first time, she is absolutely manipulated into it, and it's still an accident. But the show still holds her to the fire for it, too. Even though you understand it's like she never would have chosen it, she still takes responsibility for it. Yeah, she still did it. Right, and she, she like, even understands. Like, that's the thing. Like, the thing is, is we, we tend to judge ourselves based upon our intentions, and we judge others based upon their actions. Right, and Xena and Gabrielle, I mean, they're not perfect, but they very often would judge themselves based off of what they did. Not always, because they're not perfect, but I really appreciated that we had these two heroes that didn't try to excuse their shit. No, and sometimes shit happens, but you have to, you have to you own up to it. You still did it. Yeah, you still you did still it. You still bent over they're and still took dead. that shit. 
they're still dead. Like, yes, saying I didn't mean to is not going to bring them back to life. You have in order to be in order to be redeemed, you have to do something that balances out your karma, so to speak. Right. And it, I mean, like I said, people who've watched Xena um, will back me up. Like if, most juries today would not find Gabrielle guilty for that. But she would be bad slaughter. Maybe. I mean, she was highly, highly manipulated, and the people were actively trying to get her to do it. But she still owns up to it, because she said, it was still my hand. Yep. And you know so many series right now, or comics, that they would just be like, oh, I didn't mean to do it, and it wasn't, and everybody else would be like, it's not your fault, and Xena tries a little bit with Gabrielle, but Gabrielle shuts that down. It's like, it was my hand, and Zena's like, well, yeah, I was, and everything changes now. They just, they leveled with each other in a way that we've gotten away from with some of our superheroes. Yeah, and it's also that the acceptance of the burden is not where it stops either. Right. Because that's another, that's another problem, another problem we have with modern storytelling, is that a character will accept responsibility for what they've done, and then all the other characters will suddenly be like, Oh no, it's okay. No, no, it isn't. That's the whole point of this. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though. You can't just own up like, yeah, I did a terrible thing, and then waltz off like nothing happened. You have to own up to doing a terrible thing, and then actively work on doing better. It's like, again, I'm going back to Bucky Barnes. You know, oh, it's not Bucky's fault. He didn't mean to. Steve, I mean, secret Empire shenanigans we're not getting into. Steve Rogers in the MCU has a major, major blind spot for Bucky Barnes. And he excuses his actions to an extreme to the point where it splits up his team. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sorry, Tony had every right to punch him in the face. Because it was still Bucky. Bucky still killed his parents. So you contrast that with Steve's attitude towards Bucky, with Xena towards Gabrielle of, she's like, yeah, technically it wasn't really your fault, but yeah, you did kill them and things are going to change now. And, you know, we'll work through it, but yeah, you did it. There's no sugarcoating with them. This is going to sound really kind of terrible, but um, women process. And in fiction, this is more common with women, partly because we are often depicted as processing our emotions on screen. It's not that men can't process, but this is sort of what's happening here is that you are internalizing your actions and actually right. consciously thinking about them. Well, and it's just, it's why I love their relationship so much is because they are brutally honest with each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, they are brutally honest with each other. Yeah, they still keep stuff from each other, but when, like, the chips are down, like, they are so brutally honest and there is such this solid bedrock of trust between them. Look, Because honestly, of everything they've gone through. If you're an adult, you will know, like, once you hit a certain age, you know, there are just some things that you do keep to yourself. Like, this whole cu- this whole culture of, like, we want complete and utter honesty about everything between us. Uh, no, there's, sometimes you have to keep some secrets. Yeah, you're going to learn that the hard way if you keep going with that. But you know what? That's you, trial and error. Yep. 
And in order for trust to be established, you have like that's what trust is. You have to trust that somebody is not concealing something to hurt you. And that's the difference. Concealing it to hurt you over concealing it because it has nothing to do with you. Yes, or concealing it to protect yourself. Right. And you see Gabrielle and Zena do that throughout the series, but they have a few moments where they concealed something that hurt the other person. And the show spends several episodes with them resolving that and analyzing that and seeing from both sides how it hurt both of them. And I remember watching that as a kid and just being like, wow, they're really going into this on like this just interpersonal relationship with each other. <laughs> it was a little gay. It was a lot gay. It was hella but it was, gay. But the other thing is, is that's a lot healthy. Yes. Like, that's, you're supposed to do that. Like, that maybe they don't outwardly manifest it in the most healthy ways, but they get a healthy resolution. Yes. The process of working through issues together is a healthy thing to do as a pair. It doesn't have to be romantic, but as a pair of people who care about each other, either as friends or as lovers. Yes, this is something that you have to do. Exactly. So basically what we've been trying to say throughout this whole 54 minutes so far is you should go watch Xena. Um... (laughs) Is it still on Netflix? It was on Netflix for a while. Um, I don't think it is. Oh, I'm no. sure it'll come back. Well, if it's on Netflix, you know what? I'm actually going to look this up. Um, yeah. You can buy it for pretty darn cheap. The season's for pretty darn cheap off of Amazon. And I say pretty darn cheap compared to when I bought them over 10 years ago with these big-ass <laughs> box sets. Oh, I remember you had to get up and change the DVD every three episodes. Yes. God, back but in the caveman days. Okay, you can actually get it off of um, Netflix as the DVDs. You can't stream it. I would be floored if it didn't exist on one of the menagerie of streaming services that I pay $10 a month for. It's somewhere. and Even if you have DVDs with Netflix, you can get it there. Um, but it's basically if you want to kind of see where a lot of our established tropes and film slash come from go back and watch Xena it's a good historical show if for nothing else than for that just so you can get some context of where most of our film slash established tropes have come from but also keep in mind yes it is cheesy as hell yeah but that's good I think it's something that we actually really need now yes it is because we We've we've gotten so far up the ass of Grimdark, mm. like really just doing a Xena rewatch would probably be good for your soul. Yes. And it would complement nicely that Winona Earp is coming back this summer. Once you've finished your binge of Winona Earp, or this if you might can't be a good thing to jump to. June and you have time in May, you can do a nice little binge watch of Xena up into up to it. Um, That's true. Yeah. But it's a really good, solid, yes, it's cheesy, but it's just a solid, fun show that shows women getting to be human. Like, warts and smiles and all, and they get to work through it. And I know for some people that what 
they did as far as the queer content wasn't enough. But please keep in mind... It was 20 freaking years ago. It was 20 years ago, and also, it is still really fucking gay when you watch it now. That <laughs> subtext is, yes. is not subtle. Um, if if you have some money and you really want to binge on it, um, you can get the complete series on Amazon for fifty eight forty seven. Oh, that's not bad at all. Yeah, and that's the complete series, so you're getting six seasons worth. Is that digital? Or is that uh, a box set? Well, if you give me just a second, I love internet. I know, right? It's just, it brings fandoms together. Yes. Uh, it's DVD, so you can't get it digital. But they do, you know, you can purchase it at a fairly reasonable price. Excellent. But again, like I said, for your just for your fandom history and your fanfic history... I would still recommend that you watch this just so you can have a better understanding of why we ship the things we ship and why we're attracted to certain things and kind of just how our fandom, our film slash fandom groups came about. I mean, it's a really interesting series to watch through when you realize all this stuff is going on in the background and if for nothing else I mean you have lesbian superheroes and the showrunners are not shy about all but saying oh no they are so super gay for each other yeah and like if you if I was ever gonna say there's a show that has soulmates and quite literally they do an episode about this where they are literally soulmates in multiple versions multiple incarnations it's Xena is this why this stupid trope is so popular? Now that I just said that, I'm realizing it might be. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there's like, that I, too. There's that I, too. I talk about this a lot. And like, and I've been going through the Glee retrospectives and stuff. It is important to know this history. And no one is going to... Well, we're teaching it to you. But no one is going to go explicitly out of their way to teach you these things. And you do need to have this awareness of where we came from. Exactly. So that about wraps up our time for this episode. Um, check back in later this month, I believe. We're actually going to be talking about Winona Earp next time. Nope, we are doing Mass Effect. I have waited long okay, enough, and okay, I even wrote right. an outline. Elizabeth has spoken. We are doing Mass Effect, and I will brush up on my Mass Effect lore just for her. We had a fan comment on Tumblr that they were upset every time we talked about Mass Effect or said we were going to and don't. Okay, so we're doing so we Mass will Effect. talk about Mass Effect and then we'll probably hit <laughs> Winona Earp in June. Thank yes. you guys for tuning in. If you were a Xena fan, hit us up in the comments. I would love to talk Xena with you guys. Tune in next time when we talk uh, Mass Effect. And, and please take a look at our merch store. It's fancy, yes. it's new, and you will love it. Yes. Also, if you haven't, uh, review us on iTunes, subscribe to us. Show us some love. We greatly appreciate it. We do very much. All right. Take care.